0: Amen. That's a truth that comforts our hearts and souls, that Christ is our hope in life and death. If you bow your heads with me, we're going to pray, and I'm going to pray from um, Psalm 96. Heavenly Father, your glory is declared among the nations. Your works are marvelous, and your peoples marvel at all that you've done. You are a great Lord, and you alone are greatly to be praised. You are a Lord that is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of this world, all the things that we turn and worship, are worthless. They are nothing. They can't speak, they can't act, they can't do anything. And we, in our sinful flesh rebel against you, but you are the one true God. You are worthy. Your splendor and majesty are ever before you. Your strength and beauty are your sanctuary. And Lord, this morning we want to ascribe praise and glory to you. And we ask that you would reveal yourself to us through your word. Lord, help um, our hearts to be tender to receive and submit to what you say about yourself Help us to hear how your word applies to our lives and that we would live in response, that we would live a life of worship, fully submitted to your will and your way because of what Christ has done, because of your grace that you've given us. We thank you for Jesus. We ask for your help this morning. We pray it all in his precious name. Amen. Well, for those of you that were able to join us, we just um, had the Iron Summit this last weekend. Uh, I know several of you had signed up and sadly weren't able to come um, due to health reasons or circumstances that came up. But it was a really enjoyable time. Um, it was a huge blessing to get to go down to Emporia with several of you and to get to sit under God's word and to learn about character to learn about what God's word says about how God's people are supposed to live. And I wanted to thank uh, the wives, the kids that were willing to give away um, uh, for their dads or, or men to be able to come. It's so um, precious to be able to spend time with the body of Christ, worshiping Christ, and it was really neat to see 700 people, some gathered together, singing praises to God from different churches. What an encouragement that is, and it's encouragement this morning to see you all Um, It was a good reminder uh, that what happens in regards to church um, doesn't happen up here on this stage, but Christ died for his bride. And that is a precious truth, and I'm so excited to get to open God's Word with you this morning. Today we're going to be in the book of Philippians, but um, Paul is going to be addressing for us, so feel free to turn there, he's going to be addressing for us a question that I think is really plaguing all of our minds right now. A question that we deal with each and every week. There's lots of um, events going on in our world. Um, There's a sexual revolution. There's all the uh, medical crisis issues. And constantly, what's coming up in our minds is how should I live? How do I respond to everything that is going on in this world? What is it that I should do? And we're desperate. We're desperate to understand, how should I live in these circumstances today? Well, we're going to be finding out what Paul addresses to this very question in the book of Philippians. This morning we're going to be in chapter 1. If you turn there with me, and if you haven't already, we're going to be in verses 27 through 30. And we'll be completing the opening chapter of Paul's prison epistle to his dear friends and saints at Philippi. Up to this point... Paul has praised God for um, fellow partners in the gospel, this Philippian church, and he's updated them regarding his imprisonment in Rome. Paul wanted them to know what God was accomplishing in his life and also his personal attitude toward the opposition he was experiencing in pursuing and advancing the gospel. Paul's priority and confidence was anchored to his Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, the mere circumstances of Paul's life, though, was not the main point. He was wanting to the, the believers, actually, rather, to see the marvelous Christ. Those um, who were partnering with him, he wanted to see that this gospel message that was advancing in the world was all-consuming to Paul. It was everything to him. And we see this in our text that we've looked at. In verse 18, um, the imprisoned apostle declared, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. And in verse 21, he confidently concluded, For me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Jesus, his Savior, was everything to him. He was his master and Lord, and Paul saw himself as a servant of Christ. But in verse 24, Paul actually begins a transition in his focus away from what God's doing in his life specifically onto what God desires to do in the lives of the Philippian believers. He uses the phrase, more necessary on your account. And in verse 25, he says it's, he's doing this for your progress and joy in the faith. And now starting in verse 27, Paul actually firmly sticks his landing by directly telling these Christians how they are to live. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. The first thing that Paul says is an imperative. It's a command. He says, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. And this was a common idea for Paul in his letters. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1, he wrote, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling of which you have been called. And again in Colossians chapter 1, verse 10, he says, Walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. But what does this phrase mean? Does it mean that we're supposed to be good enough to earn eternal life? Is God maybe looking down on humanity and keeping tabs on people based on their performance and saying, You know what? I was watching you, and I think you're worthy. Come on into heaven. Be with me. Maybe an illustration would be helpful here. I have a cup, and let's imagine that it has water in it. If a bird was to fly by and poop in this water cup... Just once. Would it be worthy to drink it? Would you judge it as something that you'd want to consume and take into your body? Our sin is a contaminant, according to Scripture. Our sin has corrupted us. And even sinning once against a holy God, even if you put a cherry on top of a poop water cup, it doesn't make it an Oreo blizzard. It doesn't make it any better And think about for a minute with me, to take this and to present it to somebody to drink. It's repulsive, right? It's gross. You wouldn't dare put it near your face, much less your mouth. But we come to Scripture and we often think in our own minds wrongly as sinners that we can earn our way to salvation. How many times have you talked to somebody about the gospel and you can tell in their mind they're thinking, but I've done some good stuff. Maybe that's you this morning. Maybe you think, you know what, I'm here, I'm listening to this message and I know that I've done some wrong things. I've disobeyed God, a holy God, but I think I can be good enough. This passage is not telling you that you can be worthy enough. What we hear in the gospel, the good news of salvation, is that you are not worthy, but Christ is worthy. Christ, the Son of God, came and lived a life that you could not live. He lived the perfect life. And being the Son of God, he died in your place to pay for your sin and to give you a righteous, worthy, perfect life. The only way anybody gets into heaven is on the worthiness of Jesus Christ. Will you recognize this morning that you need to repent and believe and trust in Jesus Christ? I hope that you will. In this passage, what we see is not that our worthiness comes from how we live, but rather the idea here that Paul's mentioning, this idea of worthiness, is not one of deserving but one of displaying. It's about displaying the worthiness of Christ. Paul's directive to the Philippians is that their conduct as servants of Christ must be consistent with the gospel of Christ. If they are to bear the name of Christ, that means they represent Christ, and they need to represent him in an accurate and honoring way. Paul is calling them to behave as good citizens, not of Rome, but as of heaven. In chapter 3, verse 20, he declared that their citizenship is in fact in heaven, That has already been received through the finished work of Christ. But what remains is the mandate regarding their manner of living. They are to fulfill their civic duty and represent their heavenly hometown. But Paul doesn't just mention this command as the first of a long list of things that they're supposed to do. He states it actually exclusively. If you notice in this text, he says, Only. This is the one and only thing that you need to be concerned with. This is the utmost important thing. It needs to be all-encompassing in your life. There's no breaks. There's no days off. There's no holidays or vacations, no detours, no side jobs. Just this one thing. And he says, live for Christ. Your life ought to be lived for Christ. For Christ, I love how Paul depicts the life of a Christian in Romans chapter 12. After the first 11 chapters of unfolding the mountains of mercy of a sovereign God towards rebellious sinners in salvation, he then, in verse 1 of chapter 12, pleads with these believers, and he says, to present their bodies as a living sacrifice. A living sacrifice to God. And he says that it's supposed to be holy and acceptable to him. That it's supposed to be pleasing in his sight. That is what we are called to. And verses like these about walking worthy of the gospel of Christ for Christians that talk about this sort of total, complete surrender to Christ are actually really sobering. They're sobering because they remind us of a truth that we often like to ignore. Your conduct is declaring your citizenship. Your behavior is displaying what you believe to be true. The way you live will always reveal where your loyalties lie. And that's why Paul says here in this text, whether I come and see you or I'm absent, I may, he said, hear of you. Let me remind us this morning, your life is talking. And it's saying stuff about Christ. How you respond to stress at work. How you react when your plans get thrown out the window. How you handle being overlooked or neglected. Everything, every day you live, is telling others around you what you think to be true of Christ. That Christ is too small to help you at work. That Christ's plan is a disruption to your agenda that Christ's love for me is not enough. Scripture actually presents our aim as believers clearly and concisely in 1 Corinthians 10.31. You probably know it. Whether you eat or drink, or whatsoever you do, you do all to the glory of God. Paul started in verse 12 in Philippians chapter 1 by showing them his own life. And what it looks like to live entirely for Christ. Not as some sort of super saint, but as a co-laborer for Christ. And now he's calling them to do the exact same thing. To live a life that evidences and adorns the glorious grace of Christ. But what exactly is expected of believers? What does it look like for us to walk worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ, to faithfully obey this calling and command to live for Christ. What does worthy conduct look like for a servant of Christ? Paul goes on to tell us, and we know this because he says the words, so that, as if to say here that there is an expected result. Here is what it looks like for your manner of life to be worthy of the gospel of Christ. And the first mark of worthy conduct we see in our text this morning, Paul mentions it, he says, standing firm for the gospel. We're going to see a total of four marks, but the first one is standing firm for the gospel. Standing firm carries the idea of steadfastly holding one's ground regardless of danger or opposition. This often referred to a soldier who defended his position at all costs, even to the point of sacrificing his own life. Paul is using it here to convey that worthy conduct of a servant of Christ looks like holding fast to belief despite personal consequences. To have a sort of concrete conviction without the consideration of compromise. To be resolved both in sound doctrine and spiritual devotion, in both biblical truth and holy living. I think most of us here this morning would agree that God's written word is authoritative. But let me ask you, why do you believe that? Is it because some guy from a pulpit said it's true? Is it because your parents say it's true? Is it because you have a gut instinct or maybe? You know, the people around me all say it's true, so I'm just kind of going with the stream here. The only way we can stand firm is to have our convictions formed by and anchored in God's word. God is the authority. 2 Timothy 3.16 says, "...all scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, and for instruction in righteousness." So that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished for every good work. God has given us everything we need for life and godliness. Do you remember the fall back in Genesis chapter 3? The temptation to disobey God was posed as a question. A question that has rung out throughout centuries of sinful human history. It's very simple. Did God really say? Did God really say? I think it's essential for a Christian believer to understand that we are to stand firm for Christ in the midst of persecution. And to do that, we must be convinced from God's word himself. We need to know what God has said and live according to what his word calls us to do. To believe what God says is true, even when we don't feel like it. To follow in obedience and say, Lord, I want to be submitted to your word so much so I'm not gonna trust my experience or my emotions in the moment, but I want that to be trained by what you've said. That is how we can stand firm. And when we stand in that way, We display the glorious God who has saved us by his grace. Standing firm for the gospel is how we can walk worthy. But secondly, we see a second mark of worthy conduct that Paul mentions in this text. He says that we're to be striving together for the gospel. He continues in verse 27 by stating, With one mind, striving side by side. Striving side-by-side is a compound word that conveys the idea of competing in a contest with someone. It's the idea of team sports. Maybe we can use football for for an example. If standing firm is the defense, then striving side-by-side would be the offense. You have linemen, you have a quarterback, a running back, and you have your wide receivers, right? Right? But if the linemen decide to not block, the quarterback gets crushed. He gets destroyed and maybe ends his career. But when the linemen do their job and they block for the quarterback, that gives him enough time to see the defense. And maybe there's a crossing route that comes by and he's able to pump fake to the crossing route so that the other wide receiver can go over the top of the safety for an easy touchdown. They're striving together side by side, even if the lineman never gets the football. But there's effort involved. There's striving involved. There's a a play that has to be called that everyone has to follow. This picture is everyone working in unison to achieve a specific goal. And in our text, Paul is saying that that unifying goal that we are to seek to advance, he says right afterwards, he says it's for the faith of the gospel, just as paul modeled in his own life earlier striving to advance the gospel of christ is a necessary mark of worthy conduct of a servant of christ how are you striving in advancing the gospel of jesus christ according to scripture the saints are to be equipped to do the work of the ministry Every true believer in Christ has experienced the transforming power of the gospel, and every believer is called to share the good news with others. But doing that requires intentional effort. If our conduct as Christians is going to display the glories of the gospel, there ought to be evidence of straining, of driving, of laboring and toiling, to going out, to making every effort But do you know why we don't live this way? I think there's at least two reasons why we don't live this way. First, it's because it requires sacrifice. If I can play back on the football analogy, I think one of the most coolest positions in football is the fullback. The fullback is the guy that stands between the quarterback and the running back, and his job is to just hit somebody. You call a running play and a lineman make a hole, but there's a linebacker there that's gonna plug that hole. That's his only job. And use the fullback, just get to go lay into him. And sometimes you get laid on because <laughs> that guy's a lot bigger than you. But they love contact. They don't often get the ball, and they're often square on their back. And they're leaning forward saying, Did the running back get through? I only had to last a second. Did he make it through? I'm laying out my body, but did the objective get accomplished? He's willing to sacrifice himself. And friends, I want you to understand that sacrifice glorifies God. It shows Christ-like character. It displays the worthiness of Christ because Jesus died and sacrificed himself for our sins. And when we live that way, we're testifying to the good news of the gospel. Secondly, a second way I th- reason I think we don't often live this way, if we're being honest, is because it requires submission. And here's what I mean by submission. It means that you're willing to run the play that the coach called. If your wide receivers don't run the route correctly you're going to throw an interception. It's not going to go well. But being willing to strive, not just in your own way to do your own thing, but to be connected to the body of Christ. and To say, I'm about Christ's mission, and his mission is being done through the body of Christ. I want to be a part of that. I want to work together. I'm willing to submit... Some of my own desires, my own plans to work with others to share the good news of the gospel, to advance that. We need to be willing to sacrifice if we're going to strive, and we need to be willing to submit. When you say, My comfort is not my top priority, my career is not my top priority, my reputation is not my top priority but Christ is, and I'm going to strive with the body of Christ to share the message of Christ, then you live in a way that declares to this broken, sin-infested world the immeasurable worthiness of Jesus Christ. Paul has laid out for us the first two marks of worthy conduct of a servant of Christ. First, that we should stand firm for the gospel, And second, that we should strive together for the gospel. But the third mark of worthy conduct is not a what, not a what we should do, but rather a how, how we are to do it. And he continues in verse 28, he says, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. The third mark of worthy conduct is that we are to be unafraid of opponents of the gospel. And this is really important. It's important because the attitude behind an action makes a huge impact. The idea of standing firm and striving together both involve resistance to opposition. And Paul is saying, Do not be alarmed by the enemy. Don't go running scared. Be fearless. In our flesh, we can become so used to justifying our ungodly fears that we struggle to identify it as sinful anymore. We avoid conflict, we omit truth to preserve a relationship, or we avoid responsibility so that we won't receive any blame. And we do this because we're drenched in ungodly fear. Friends, sin has a hardening effect on your soul and will only get worse until you're willing to walk in the light. To confess your sin knowing that through Christ you can be forgiven. And you can walk in confidence because Christ has defeated sin and death. And he has been victorious and he offers that victory to all of those who turn from their sin and trust in him alone for eternal life. I think we can see that for a Christian to act defeated, for a Christian to act hopeless, for a Christian to act fearful of opposition to the good news of the gospel is strictly inconsistent with what Christ has done. Living a life of fear is like dropping a bowling ball at the peak of your backswing. It'll make a loud noise and it'll embarrass you but it doesn't accomplish what you're aiming to do. It prevents it. The opposition mentioned in this passage is not ordinary difficulties of life. Paul is talking about real resistance to preaching Christ. Paul is in prison for the gospel, awaiting trial and even possible execution. And because he has Christ, he is unafraid of his opponents and able to call other believers to live that way as well. When believers live this way, they are assigned to both foe and friend," this passage says. "To the former a sign of their coming judgment, and to the latter a sign of salvation from God." Paul would convey this same concept in Second Thessalonians chapter one, verse four and five, when he said, "Therefore we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God, for your steadfastness, steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions, in the afflictions that you are enduring." This is the evidence of righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God. By the grace of God and through the finished work of Christ, we are called to live unafraid of opponents of the gospel. Paul continues in the remaining verses of this chapter to give us now the when, the when regarding worthy conduct for a servant of Christ. Under what conditions, we could ask, are believers to boldly stand united, to fearlessly strive together? Look with me at verse 29 and 30. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. The fourth and final mark of worthy conduct of a servant of Christ is suffering for the sake of the gospel. I think it can be easy to romanticize standing firm and striving together and fearlessness, but suffering? That doesn't have the same sort of appeal. But Paul is not presenting these four marks in isolation. Rather, he is saying that courage in standing and striving must be present amidst suffering. Suffering will happen when your life is about advancing the gospel. Jesus told his disciples this in John fifteen twenty. Remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. But Paul is saying here that suffering is not merely a byproduct, but rather it's actually a blessing from God. He said, For it has been granted to you. Suffering in service for Christ is not described in Scripture as gloom, it's described as grace. And within our text, Paul repeats a phrase that sheds light for us on how we might correct our view of suffering. He says the phrase, For the sake of Christ. And again, he says, Suffer for His sake. If your life is really about your happiness, then avoiding suffering will be your number one objective. But if Christ is your Lord and Master... The one who loved you and gave himself for you, then your life is not your own. You're hidden with Christ. That means that Christ is your life, and your greatest delight in being a servant of Christ is to live for him, to follow his orders, to obey his commands. That is, you spend yourself for the purpose of your master. Paul concludes in 2 Corinthians 4.17 that this light momentary affliction, referring to suffering, is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Your suffering in this life for the gospel is not meaningless. Paul understood the adversity the church at Philippi was dealing with because he experienced it firsthand. Both when he planted the church and he was still facing it in Rome. But just as God had granted them grace to believe for salvation, so also God had given the suffering to his saints to display his glorious grace. Paul would write in Romans chapter five that we rejoice in our sufferings knowing that suffering produces endurance that endurance produces character and character produces hope and hope does not put us to shame because god's love has been poured into our hearts through the holy spirit that has been given to us he would say as a down payment as a guarantee of inheritance and glory I think our view of suffering is often skewed by our flesh and we don't have a biblical view of suffering but I think it's important and essential for us as a church for you as a Christian to recognize the world's heating up it's getting hotter sin is more and more prevalent And like Romans 1 says, they're not okay with you just letting them sin. They demand your approval. Will you consent to say sin is okay? Sin is not gross. Sin is not rebellion against God. It's just your choice. If you stand in conviction for God's word and with Christ's church that he died for in a sort of fearlessness knowing the victory that's been accomplished suffering will come but it will be for your good and for God's glory and when you can stand in persecution it makes Christ look worthy of all praise, glory, and honor and strength Revelation says, worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive all praise, glory, honor, and strength. I was reminded this week of a song that says, My worth is not in what I own, not in my flesh or strength or bones, but in the costly wounds of love at the cross. This is the worthy conduct of a servant of Christ. That we would stand firm and strive together, unafraid of opponents, amidst suffering, suffering that is granted to us. But all of these things are not a list. They're all part of this one thing. This how do I live today? How do I deal with all this stuff going around? The phrase that ought to ring through every analysis that we deal with as a Christian is how do I respond to this situation for the sake of the gospel? Friends, if you put anything else after that, how do I respond to this situation that best serves my purposes, that makes me most comfortable, that doesn't get me in trouble with these groups or this people? You will constantly be burdened and buried with fear and doubt. But it's really a gift to us. (laughs) to have the one and only thing. To say, I'm a servant of Christ, and whatever God calls me to, whatever he brings into my life, Lord, help me to see how this is for your glory. How this is about glorifying Christ in this situation. How can I respond in this situation? How can I live in a way that is for the sake of Christ? May that be our motivation, our heart's cry as we seek to live this week to glorify our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word that is a compass to us. It is a guide to our steps. And Lord, as we look into the high calling of your word, we recognize that it is not in and of ourselves that we can stand, that we can strive, that we have some sort of courage to endure suffering, but it is because of what you have done for us through your Son, Jesus Christ. Lord, our hearts are plagued with sin, but your Spirit is at work and is stronger than our hearts. And we ask, Lord, that you would impress in our hearts and minds your Word through the power of your Spirit. Help us to see our sinfulness, how we are failing to live this way, and that you would purify for yourself a bride. Purify your church and enable us by your strengthening grace, by your sanctifying grace, to walk in a manner worthy. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name be the glory. Amen.